So this morning we're going to be talking about the church at Sardis. And um, to be perfectly honest, this, one's, this letter is kind of a hard one. It's, um, it's a little bit in your face, and it confronts your spiritual condition in a pretty serious way. To begin, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then after that I'll read the passage. So, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that you've given us to come together and to fellowship with one another and worship of who you are and indeed the gospel, Lord. Lord, I pray that you will edify us by your word, sanctify us by your word, that we would come to know and understand greater and deeper things of who you are and what you would have for us. And I pray that you'll just be with us and bless our resting in the Lord and his finished work today as we look upon him in Jesus' name. Amen. So today uh, is, again, the last Sunday school that we're going to have until the fall. So my goal was really to get through the seven letters, um, but we didn't really time it right. Um, I was going to try to double up on some of the letters, but the thing is, each letter really attacks a different subject, a different issue. So I didn't really want to jump around uh, from one to or from one to the next without first fully addressing the one I have. So we're we're going to end on the church at Sardis, but there's still three other churches that we haven't covered: Laodicea, Philadelphia, and the other one. I forget which name it was. <laughs> so the, that that other church. Okay. Um, so to begin, I'm going to read Revelation three verse one, starting at verse one, and to the angel. of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and seven stars. Remember that number. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That's pretty serious. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in a white, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is serious. Now remember I said we often consider the book of Revelation in regards to eschatology, the knowledge or the study of the end times. But the question remains, what does it actually have to do with us? Premising this entire thing again, when we read the Bible, we are to consider what the practical application is for us immediately, for the people in our church, for our church itself, and for the church universal. So a little bit about the city of Sardis, what it was like. (coughs) The character of the city of Sardis. Now, I went through some of of these theologians and historians you may not have heard of, um, but the church in Sardis, at the time Jesus spoke these words to John, the the ancient city of Sardis had seen its best days and it had already started to decline. Yet it was a wealthy city situated at the junction of several important roads and trade routes. The connection between Sardis and money, easy money, was well known in the ancient world. This is Sardis. It's approximately 30 to 50 miles from Thyatira 
and it's about the distance from here to Tulsa from Smyrna. So not really that far away. But as we go through these letters, you see the distinctive differences in all these churches, but they're really not that far away. The cultures weren't that different, okay? But what you see in ancient Rome, the means of logistics of, of moving things from one place to another was done primarily by the ocean. So we see a lot more activity in, in cities by the ocean, but when you start to get further inland, things start to change a little bit, okay? Sardis, or John Barclay, a theologian from in the 1950s, it says that it, it is of interest to note that the first coinage, this is interesting, ever to be minted in Asia Minor was minted in Sardis in the days of Croesus. Croesus was a very wealthy king, if you don't remember from world history. These roughly formed electrum starters, or staters as they were called, were the beginning of money in the modern sense of the term. Sardis was the place where modern, modern money was actually born. Okay? This city was also known for its softness and luxury. It had a well-deserved reputation for apathy and immorality. In Sardis, there, was a large, uh, there were numerous large temples, but there was one distinctive temple that set out from others. Uh, it was the, the temple to the goddess Cybele. It's not the only city that had one of these temples. Uh, from the ruins of that temple, we can see that its main columns were about 60 feet high and more than six feet in diameter. This, th this was a very large temple. The mother goddess was honored and worshiped and with all kinds of sexual immorality and impurity. Now it was, again, it was only about 30 miles out of Thyatira and it was about 170 miles. I'm sorry, that's more like from, um, I might've gotten that wrong. It was, it was, I figure it was roughly about the size or the distance from here to Tulsa. It could have been a little further. Now Jesus describes himself when Jesus, this is important to think about. When you have an idea of Jesus, what is it often? Like if you were to write down everything that you knew about Christ and you were to write it on a piece of paper, what would it look like? What would you actually say about him? If you were told to describe in a letter to someone via correspondence, email, text message, or what have you, what would you actually say about Christ as far as what, he, what you know about him? And we often, when we, we picture Christ, we think about the Christ of the New Testament, and rightly so, we consider what the gospel say about him, his demeanor, the things that he did. But when Christ addresses the churches in the book of Revelations, how does he do it? He premises the entire address with stating who he is. And how he described himself wasn't the Christ that we see, not that he's a different person, but he is changed. He's not the same. Remember, there is a Christ that's going to return. And he's not the gentle little lamb that was slaughtered, right? I, I've said this last week. Remember, there, there, I heard a preacher once say that we should keep our eye on, one eye on the Christ of the gospel and one eye on the Christ of revelation. It's an important thing to consider. <clears throat> The normal idea of Christ that we have is challenged in the address of the book or the, the letters to the churches of Revel, or the churches of, of the region. These things he says, uh, Jesus described himself to use the terms that emphasize his character as the master of every spiritual power and authority. The repetition of the number seven helps indicate this because seven is the number of completeness in the Bible. Now I'm not getting into any kind of strange you know code or anything like that but there is there is a correlation with the number seven all throughout the bible therefore jesus holds the fullness of the spirit of god and the fullness of the church he who has the seven spirits of god jesus was the fullness of the holy spirit in himself and he has the holy spirit in fullness to give to the church 
and to the seven stars. Jesus also has the fullness of the church in his hand. We know the seven stars represents the churches because of what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And through these letters, when Jesus speaks to the angels of the seven churches, he's not speaking to one individual, but to the entire church through that individual. Okay, we know that the word angel means messenger. Now, what Jesus knows about the Christians at Sardis, this is where it starts to get very interesting. He says, I know your works. As Jesus said to each church, he also said this to Sardis. He explains who he is, and then he says, I know who you are. I know what you're doing. I know what you're not doing. How does this apply to you? I can't stress that enough. He knows what the church is and what it does, and it's never hidden from him. That you have a name and that you are alive. Jesus knew the church at Sardis had a reputation for itself of life and vitality. If you looked at the church of Sardis, you would see signs of life and vitality. In the church of Sardis, like the city of Sardis, everything seemed alive and good. Um, theologian by the name of Vance Havner lived about 100 years ago. We are not, or actually, I think it was about 100 years ago. We are not to get the impression that Sardis was a defunct affair with the building erect, the members scattered, the pastor ready to resign. It was a busy church with meetings every night, committees galore, wheels within wheels, promotion and publicity, something going on all the time. We see activity. We see a lot of activity, a lot of going on in the, in the community. It had a reputation of being live, wide awake, with many concerns. Yet, this is what Jesus had against the church at Sardis. It's a very daunting word. He says, dead. He's addressing their spiritual condition. This is terrifying. We're talking about people in the church with a profession of faith and Christ talks to them he identifies who he is and he says I have this against you you're dead despite their reputation of life Jesus saw them for what they really were but you are dead shows that a good reputation is no guarantee of true spiritual character despite their good appearance Jesus saw them as dead this statement terrifies me for myself. Dead. This indicates no struggle, no fight, no persecution, like some of the other churches in the area. Despite their good appearance, oh, sorry, um, a dead body has lost the battle and the fight seems over. In this letter, Jesus didn't encourage the Christians in Sardis to stand strong against persecution or false doctrine probably because there really wasn't that much going on there. There wasn't a significant danger in things in Sardis. Being dead, the church in Sardis presented no significant threat to Satan's domain, so it really wasn't worth attacking. Sardis was a perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. Let me say that again. Sardis was a perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. Remember, there is an offense to the gospel. And we don't proclaim the gospel just for the sake of being offensive. The offense is that it calls you to repent. That's one of them. Sardis was a perfect model of inoffense of Christianity. Their problem was not scandalous wickedness, but a comfortable death. Their image said alive, but Christ says they're dead. The church of Sardis was at peace. 
that their peace was a false peace. Remember the passage, I forget what it, which one I think it's in Isaiah. They speak peace where there is no peace. Be watchful. Oh, sorry, what Jesus wants the church at Sardis to do. He says he wants you to be watchful. To be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. This is an interesting statement. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. To know the difference between true and false repentance is of most vital spiritual importance. The Bible, I wrote one of the questions down here. The Bible says things and it also teaches things. The Bible doesn't say the word Trinity, but it teaches the word Trinity. The Bible doesn't say the word eschatology, but it teaches eschatology. The Bible says the word repent, but we don't see the word false repentance in the Bible, but it does teach that there is such a thing. So the question is, what are the delineating differences between the two? Because as Christ clearly says here, and if this doesn't send a chill up and down your spine, I don't know what will. He says, you look alive, you're part of the church, you're doing things, but you're dead. It's pretty serious. Know the difference between true and false repentance. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. He's saying, you better watch out. It's, it's really just that simple. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now consider what he's saying there. Some of this may seem so contrary to the gospel that we have come to understand from the gospel accounts and the epistles. But in fact, it is the same gospel message all throughout Scripture, but it's fearfully reinforced here. He's saying, I'm not playing games. It's time to pay attention. Be watchful. The first instruction from Jesus told them that they need to examine and protect, strengthening what they do have. The things which remain tells us that though the spiritual condition of the church of Sardis was bad, it wasn't hopeless. They're not without hope. Spiritually, Jesus had not given up on them. Okay, And though it was late that they are ready to die, it was not too late. In its history, the city of Sardis was easily conquered twice before, once by uh, Cyrus, and then once actually only about 30 years later, it was, re it was conquered again. It's an interesting history there. It wasn't that the attacking armies overwhelmed Sard Sardis, because, but it was because the overconfidence made them stop being watchful. The spiritual state of the... And by the way, um, in... in Archaeology, Sardis is, is one of those places where when the city was overtaken, it was, it was overtaken so easily that it was just a slaughter and the mass graves and things uh, that are still there to this day um, show that it was, it was just like they were ran over. It was like they weren't even watching and they were just slaughtered and they were just like pushed in a grave. It's, it's a really interesting story if you want to read about it. The spiritual state of the church in Sardis was a reflection of the city's historical character. Interesting phrase again. I have not found your works perfect before God. What in the world could this mean? This shows that their works, though present, had not measured up to God's standard. So what is God's standard? The presence of works isn't enough because God requires a particular intent and purpose in all of our works. Here we see a challenge not only to our works, but our heart as well. Why are we doing the things we do? That's the question being asked. What's our motive? What's the end game?
It's not just what we do, it's also why we do it. I have um, remember, therefore, now you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. What they must do was to remember how they first received and heard the word of God. Then they must hold fast to those things and repent by turning and restoring the gospel and apostolic doctrine to authority over their lives. Okay, Paul described in 1 Thessalonians, the church at Thessalonica, chapter 2, verse 13, uh, verse 13 excuse me. The kind of reception of the world, the word they needed to remember. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth. The word of God, which you also effectively, which also effectively works in you who believe. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. Jesus warned. Jesus warned them of great danger and falling into not watching, to carelessness, to complacency. If they ignored his command to be watchful, then Jesus would come upon them as a thief at a time completely unexpected. I will come upon you. Interesting phrase. How would Jesus come upon them? He would come in the sense of bringing immediate judgment, or he would come in the sense of his coming at the rapture of the church, spoken of in 1 Thessalonians. Used in either sense, it showed he might suddenly come unannounced so they must be watchful now winston churchill i found a quote he said to britain in the early day, uh, days of world war ii i must drop one word of caution for next to cowardice and treachery overconfidence leading to neglect and slothfulness is the worst of wartime crimes you have a few names even in sardis who, do, who have not defiled their garments even among the dead Christians in Sardis. And my, what, a, what an interesting thing to be a dead Christian. That's, that, should, um, that should cause concern. There was a faithful remnant, but only a few names. In Pergamos, Revelations 2, chapter 14, and Thyatira, Revelations 2, verse 20, they were, there were a few bad among the good, but here in Sardis, there's a few good among the bad who have not defiled their garments. Listen to this. Jesus referred to defiled garments because in the heathen worship of the day, the pagan gods could not be approached with dirty clothes. The analogy works for the worship of Jesus because he gives his people white garments. And they shall walk with me in white. Jesus also promised that these pure ones would walk with me. This picture of close fellowship and friendship is seen in Enoch who walked with God and he was not for God took him. And that's in Genesis chapter 5. Now, of course, the garments Jesus gives are always white. Sardis was a church that was dead because of sinful compromise. Let me say that again. Sardis was a church that was dead because of compromise. They needed to receive and walk in pure white garments that Jesus gives. White was also the color of triumph to the Romans, so the white garments spoke of uh, the believer's ultimate triumph in Christ. Walk with me. This is the greatest reward Jesus gives his followers. The Christians in Sardis who forsook the sinful compromise of their city would be rewarded with a closer, more intimate walk with Christ. The reward is utterly a better motivator than the fear of punishment or ruin from our sin. The pure can have greater intimacy with God, not because they have earned it. Okay? This is not something that they're earning, but because they are simply more interested in the things of God. God promises to reward that interest. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Matthew chapter 5. 
But what shall be done with such persons as live in the church but are not of it? Having a name to live but yet are dead. What shall be done with mere professors who are not, who are not possessors? That's something Spurgeon used to say. What shall become of those who are, on, are only outwardly religious but inwardly are in bitterness? We answer, as Calvin did once, they shall walk in the black for they are unworthy. They shall walk in black. The blackness of God's destruction, they shall walk in black. The blackness of hopeless despair, they shall walk in black. The blackness of incomparable anguish, they shall walk in black. The blackness of damnation. They shall walk in black forever because they were found unworthy. Direct quote by Charles Spurgeon. A promise of reward to those who overcome. Part 6. He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments. Jesus identified the overcomers with those few names who have not defiled their, garment, their garments. Uh, Revelation 3 verse 4. These overcomers would wear white garments received from Jesus. The difference between the dead majority with imperfect works but who had a good reputation with the few names who please God was purity. Purity. And the closeness with Jesus that is always related, there is a closeness to Christ that is always related to purity, to repent, to be sanctified, to be holy. The deadness and spiritual facade of most of the Christians in Sardis was related to their impure lives, their embrace of the impurity and the sin of the world around them. It's hard to say if the deadness came from impurity or the impurity came from the spiritual deadness, but they were obviously correlated. Jesus explained the absolute necessity of this being clothed by God with his garments of purity and righteousness in his parable of the wedding feast. If you remember that parable, Matthew 22 uh, speaks of it in detail, in detail. Real righteousness is receiving God's covering instead of trying to cover ourselves. Adam and Eve tried to cover their own sin, Genesis chapter 3, but God provided them with a covering that came from sacrifice, his sacrifice, Genesis chapter 3 as well. I will not, now this, this is where we often, we hear about the book of life. Jesus talks about it in great detail here. I will not blot out his name from the book of life. By this, the overcomers were assured of their heavenly citizenship. In the ancient world, death or criminal conviction could blot out the name of an ancient citizen from the city's book of the living, which was like an actual register. In ancient Rome, cities kept a register of their citizens, and when a man died, his name was removed from that register. The risen, the risen Christ is saying, if we wish to remain on the role of the citizens of God, we must keep our faith alive. Blot out his name from the book of life. Does this mean you can lose your salvation? That someone is saved one day, their name is in the book of life, and another day they have fallen away and their name has been blotted out from the book of life. It's not something the Bible actually teaches. But what we need to see in the context here in Revelations chapter 3, the focus is assurance. So we should not think that names are being constantly erased and rewritten. I, see what you, I saw what you did there. Sorry, you're out. Oh, no, no, you're back in. It's, that's not what it's saying at all. The focus, again, is insurance. Uh, the focus here is not the idea that Jesus sits in heaven with a busy eraser. At the same time, we should carefully consider what the Word has to say about the book of life. It's spoken of all throughout Scripture. There is a book of life, and it will be opened and referenced on the day of judgment. 
This means that the book of life is real and it will be read. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things were written in the books. Revelations chapter 20. There is a book of life, and it determines if we go to heaven or hell. This means that the book of life is important. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Revelations chapter 20. Here is a book of life, and knowing our names are written there should bring us great joy. It is about assurance. I've always believed that if you read the Bible through, and when you come to the book of Revelation, and you actually understand what the book of Revelations is really about, it should give you the greatest sense of peace, and also engender the greatest sense of serious respect for God and His Word. In other words, you won't play around with it anymore. This means that the idea of being blotted out of the book of life should be taken seriously. Now, perhaps it's, if we read it within the doctrine of what the Bible actually teaches, it's a symbol. I think it is a literal book, but it's also a symbol. And that person's name was never there to begin with, um, if that person's name was never there to begin with. Even if that is the case, the Lord still wants us to take it seriously. That's what we should garner from these passages. It's something to be taken seriously. Because there are some who by every human appearance are saved, yet will not be in heaven. This is a hard book to kind of read through. And believe me, it's a lot harder to stand up here and teach it. The reality is, is Christ is saying that there are, there are churches, which means people. He's not talking about the building. There are people that are Christian, but they're not saved. They're not written in the book. Their names have been blotted out. What is the criteria? Now, you and I should know that answer, but I'm going to challenge you to consider it for yourself. <clears throat> here is the book of life there are five different references to people being blotted out of the book this means that the idea of being blotted out of the book of life should be taken seriously Moses said to the Lord yet now if you will forgive their sin but if not I pray blot me out of your book which you have written in Exodus chapter 32 and the Lord said to Moses whoever has sinned against me I will blot him out of my book, Exodus 32. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous, Psalm 69. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels, Revelations 22. Here's a good example. Do, do any of you um, remember a name of Charles Templeton? sound familiar at all? Billy Graham? When Billy Graham first started, um, well, let me just read this. It's a good example of how we should take this warning seriously in regards to what's called apostasy. There's a life of a man named Charles Templeton. Um, about two or three generations ago, he was deeply involved in the foundations of Youth for Christ. It was the thing that him and Billy Graham started together. Um, Many people received Jesus at their meetings. Uh, there was a lot of decisional regeneration, the sinner's prayer kind of thing. Mr. Templeton was an associate with Billy Graham in the early years. Nevertheless, a few years later, and he was very active. He was, he was the co-founder of this organization. He a few years later, he renounced his belief in Jesus. I remember it was like a, it, it actually made the news. It was a shocking thing. Um, he renounced his belief in God, and he said he was an atheist. Charles Templeton totally renounced his early confessions of faith 
and wanted to rescue the people he had once brought to Christ. He actually went on a, like a, a reversal campaign to go back and save them from being saved. This actually happened. Now, we know this is what apostasy looks like in an obvious way, okay? Um, one may long debate if he was ever saved or if, if he lost his salvation. I, I think it, it stands to reason if Christ begins a good work in you, will he finish it? Scriptures say very clearly yes. Sorry, am I, am I over on time? I'm just a couple minutes, okay? In the genealogies of the Bible, there are two book mentions, the book of generation of Adam, Genesis 5, and the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 1. Being born of Adam doesn't guarantee that our name is written in the book of life. Being born again, born of Jesus Christ, gives us that assurance. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This was the promise. This is the promise. It simply makes sense that we should be willing to confess the name of Jesus but it is amazing that he would not be ashamed to confess us. It is important for us to accept Jesus. Now listen to this. But the danger of things like the sinner's prayer, decisional regeneration, is that it stops there. Be careful that we don't start treating coming to the table as decisional generation, regeneration, okay? Or coming to the table, treating it like the sinner's prayer. I'm not saying that's what we do. I'm saying be careful because there is a tendency or a possibility of doing that. It is important that we accept Jesus, of course. However, we see by the serious letter that it is far more important to know if Jesus accepts us. That's the difference. A general exhortation to all who will hear. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches. Sardis teaches us that we must be aware of our success. The city was wealthy, knew easy living, but it made them soft and spoiled. Sardis also teaches us that we be watchful at our strongest points. Sardis thought it was unconquerable, and so it was conquered. Where we say, I would never do that, is the exact place we must guard against. Consider the Apostle Peter. The British Field Marshal Montgomery used to say, One man can lose me a battle. One corrupt or disobedient Christian can lose a battle for an entire church. First, they lose a battle simply through their own point of failure. Second, they lose a battle because they lead others into their same sin. This may sound something familiar. Finally, they can lose a battle because they foster a spirit of accommodation to sin in their own lives and start to admonish it in other members. It only takes one person. We have to be on watch. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. Therefore let anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. That's going to conclude our teaching for today. Um, I encourage you very much to finish reading the letters to the other churches. You'll find out a lot of really interesting information from it. Also, if you like to read the Puritans, one of the best books I've ever read was, is The Doctrine of Repentance. It was written by Thomas Watson about 500 years ago, but it is a really good and assuring book. And once you get through it, I guarantee you'll understand the difference between true and false repentance. Thank you, guys.